0: i'm bijan karimi welcome to the reflecting pool where my guests and i discuss thesis research how their topic relates to the broader homeland security enterprise and what it's like to be part of the chds masters program john flynn is an assistant chief with yonkers new york fire and has been a member of the department for 31 years following in his father's footsteps who retired as a captain his grandfather was a yonkers police lieutenant So the Flynn family has been synonymous with public safety and yonkers for the better part of a century. John considered several initial topics for his research, all centering around exploring ways to improve performance during times of crisis, but couldn't figure out a way to describe it. Ultimately, it morphed into mindfulness training. Much has been written about. Cognitive bias and its impact on decision-making, thinking fast and slow by Tversky and Kahneman, and thinking clearly by Brundelli are just two examples. However, these and other books fall short by not providing tangible solutions and that's why John's research is so important. He drew on his years of experience to explore a potential solution and used himself as a test subject. John researched whether mindfulness training could help responders get more mental clarity during a crisis situation, make better decisions, and initiate a course of action when seconds count. Listen to the afterword for a case study of how mindfulness techniques are being used by a Bay Area Police Department and my own experiences with mindfulness. First responders, almost by definition, are forced to deal with novel situations. They come in, they don't know what's in front of them. How am I going to deal with it? You begin your thesis with a really powerful story.
1: I spoke about a fire, a very tragic fire that happened in Worcester. Six firefighters died in a cold storage warehouse. I thought that it was a, a good example, the way that the chief handled Making a very difficult decision, which is very, very uncommon in the the fire service, he made a decision to leave people behind. There came a point in time where he determined that sending additional firefighters in to search for the six firefighters that had been missing would very likely result in additional deaths so he insisted and gave the order that there would be no more searching for the six missing firefighters.
0: So he's, he's a senior guy. What is he drawing on to make that decision to not send additional resources knowing his personnel are inside?
1: Clearly, there was a lot of novelty involved. You know, he had never been in a scenario where he was missing six firefighters, I'm sure, nor would any typical fire chief have experienced that scenario. So there's a lot of novelty. There's a lot of complexity. You could even say there was chaos. Nonetheless, I'm sure that he was drawing on previous experiences, and he was using his previous experiences, his training, his education to make an intuitive decision about what was the right thing to do in that moment.
0: He has those years of experience to draw upon. Someone newer or less familiar may also come upon some type of situation. You mentioned in your thesis that so often the skills that firefighters are given are how to physically attack a fire, but there's that mental component, the decision-making that isn't there. So what gaps do you see or did you find in the mental approach to responding to a novel incident?
1: I wouldn't say that decision-making training isn't there, but there's definitely a gap. I don't see that there's an intentional, conscious, strategic plan to provide training in decision-making for first responders. Some agencies are clearly doing a better job of this than others. As a matter of fact, since uh, the thesis was published, I've seen some real progress with certain agencies. I don't see a lot of formal, conscious education in crisis decision-making out there with first responders.
0: The International Association of Firefighters say the most important skill to successful incident command is decision-making. Yet most first responders often focus on tactics, not on the decisions that are being made. How do first responders make decisions, and then using something you talk about, what are the sources of power that they draw on?
1: Sources of power, I use that as a a phrase to describe knowledge, skills, and abilities that first responders draw on to make effective crisis decisions. Knowledge is an easy one. We train, we educate ourselves, and physical skills, psychomotor skills, you know, raising ladders, shooting a, a weapon, physical confrontations, these are obvious things to train on and educate oneself on. The ability to make the decision, to make the right decision in a crisis is something that most departments don't seem to be focused on to the extent that they provide training and education in how your brain works, how your emotions work, how your physiology works during a crisis, how to know yourself, how to be aware, self-aware, different techniques that can be used to train yourself to think more clearly in a crisis and to see where uh, the pitfalls may be and to make the most effective decision.
0: Why do you think that firefighters aren't getting the training they need in some of this decision-making?
1: The thesis was really targeted towards first responders. I may have talked a little bit heavy about firefighters in there because I am a firefighter, but I think it's applicable to all first responders. People oftentimes think they're making good decisions. They're unaware of their own implicit biases. They're unaware of the effect of stress on decision-making They know that stress affects decision-making, but many people in the first responder community have not come across literature or information that describes specifically what is happening and that specific techniques that you can implement to manage the stress or the emotions and make more effective decisions
0: part of your research. You look at what are the different definitions. I think you talk about five. What's your definition? What's the one you go to Is the elevator speech?
1: One that I like would be the awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally. Another would be intentionally being acutely aware of what is going on internally as well as externally without reacting. The most pertinent characteristics of mindfulness are awareness and attention. Probably for about 10 years now, it's become sort of a pop culture thing. Some people in the first responder community can be skeptical just because it's it's been a popular thing. It's a little woo-woo. It's out there. So it's been a little hard to break through those barriers and, and explain exactly what it means. I actually think there's a better, better label than mindfulness. I use mindfulness in the thesis because there are mindfulness training programs, most of which are not specifically targeted toward first responders, but I was looking at would the existing programs that are out there be effective for first responders, and or could we develop new programs, what I termed mindfulness training programs, though that maybe we could relabel. And I'm stealing from somebody now, Jason Bresler. He's an FDNY firefighter, an Annapolis graduate. He is a Marine Corps officer. He's talking about optimizing human performance, and I, that would be much more easily accepted by firefighters, police officers, and so on.
0: When first responders face a novel environment, chaotic environment, One of the things we studied is the Kanaven framework and this idea of sense-making and how do I see a situation and take actions, ideally to make it better, but certainly not to make it worse. What would you say is the difference between situational awareness, some of what you talk about in in your work, versus sense-making?
1: Situational awareness is something that virtually I would imagine every first responder would be aware of. and I describe it as understanding the environment you are in and or the problem you are confronted with and being able to accurately predict future events. Sense-making, on the other hand, it's related to situational awareness, but it's more nuanced. Sense-making is needed for wicked problems when you were operating in the Canadian framework categories of chaos or disorder. Sense-making involves social connections, emotional connections, and typically the way that we perform sense-making would be by probing and then sensing and adjusting. It's also known as a ready-fire-aim strategy. Things are so chaotic or we're in the, the realm of disorder, the typical decision-making strategies that we would use are not gonna be effective because we really never come across anything quite like what we're confronted with. So we can employ our experience or our education or training because none of it is applicable to this environment. Part of the thesis was to make first responders aware that there is this thing called sense-making, that situational awareness is gonna work 99% of the time. But you need to be aware that when you enter the realms of the chaotic or disorder, that strategies that you normally use are going to be ineffective. And that you're, you really need to think ahead of time about the tools that complexity theory and sense making make available to you.
0: So then link for me sense making and mindfulness as that next step.
1: So mindfulness training would help an individual to be a better sense maker for many reasons, but emotional detachment would be one. Self-awareness would be another one. The ability, as I mentioned before, to deal with stress. Um, There's been multiple studies that are referenced in my thesis, but there's even been some very interesting studies that have come out recently. One in particular that was done with members of special forces that did a mindfulness training program for just a month, for one day a week, for eight hours. And they were asked to practice for 15 minutes a day. And then they, through neuroimaging and other tests, they were able to show actual changes in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for processing information, and also in the amygdala, which is the, the emotional, less rational s- center of the brain, as well as they, they did some some various tests. So it's, it's been shown over and over again that mindfulness training will improve many facets of your emotional regulation, your personality, your biochemistry, your neurochemistry that will make you a more effective decision maker or that that have the potential to make you a more effective decision maker.
0: You talk about a whole host of different mindfulness-based trainings, MBSR, MBRT, MBAT, they kind of go on and on. What type of behavior changes do these lead to?
1: I pretty much reference the four or five more common programs that are that are out there. And, and as you said, they're all they all have certain common denominators. They typically tend to run around eight weeks and maybe uh, two, three hour sessions a week and asking you to practice on your own or or one day on Saturday on the weekend and asking you to do practice on your own during the week. Some of them are backed up by good studies, Some of them are not. The studies that I've seen and that are referenced in the thesis, Talk about changes such as a lowering of cortisol levels, cortisol being a stress hormone, increase of neuropeptide Y, which is associated with, with more effective information processing and problem solving. As I mentioned, uh, increases in gray matter in the brain, in the prefrontal cortex area, certain characteristics of changes in the amygdala, which tends to be the part of the brain that's associated with perhaps impulsive decision making or reactivity. And then questionnaires that people would take this training, the the ones that I've seen that have been studied by universities where they're clearly reporting that they feel that they're sleeping better, better stress resilience, uh, better decision making.
0: In your literature review, you found quite a bit of information about the mindfulness training, but very little that applied to first responders. Why do you think that is?
1: First responders are great about wanting to be better at their jobs. Certainly, the more this information gets out there, the more I think they'll be open to it. That really is probably the the number one reason is that there's just a lack of awareness about this in the community. And then maybe a, a secondary reason would be some resistance and some skepticism to something that, you know, mindfulness is closely associated with meditation. Meditation is... A primary component of most mindfulness training programs, certainly not all. And we're talking strictly about secular practice here. And that type of meditation we're talking about is uh, a focus on the breath or a focus on decluttering the mind.
0: Did you meditate before you wrote your thesis, or is this one of the outcomes after you finished it?
1: No, I had tried it, um, but it did not become a practice until some point during time here. Just not
0: not due to the stress of class.
1: No, actually, I, I, for purely selfish reasons, I wanted to develop a meditation practice. I just thought that it would be something that would be good for me and could not believe that they're going to allow me to write a thesis that would explore all the various aspects of mindfulness and meditation. And at some point, probably about halfway through, I said to myself, this is going to be a little hypocritical if I finish the program and I'm not a, a regular meditator. I wouldn't say that I'm a daily meditator, but it's become a regular part of my life.
0: You make a compelling case for mindfulness training you yourself are expressing you know, benefits that you have. What is the counter-argument? Why would someone say, no, nah, that's not needed?
1: A counter-argument that I could think of would be that the resources would be better used elsewhere, that I don't think it's going to be effective. As far as potential harm that could be done by this, I don't see any. I mean, there there have been very small sample sizes of some adverse effects from meditating. People who had undiagnosed um, early childhood trauma or PTSD. And I didn't really spend a lot of time on my thesis looking at this. I don't think I, I wrote about it at all.
0: You have chosen this practice. What have the results been for you?
1: I was fairly senior in the fire service in a fairly busy urban fire department. And so I think I was pretty good at crisis decision-making, but it's made me better. I don't think that I had a problem with impulsive decision-making or a lack of self-awareness. Nonetheless, it's made me better at those things. It's made me more self-aware. It's given me more time. It it seems like things are moving just a little bit slower in a crisis event. I have a little more time now between stimulus and response. I I think self-awareness and intentional control would be the two areas where I've been able to improve the most. It's tricky because what you want to do is focus on the things that you should be focusing on so you'll have a wide view of the incident. But at the same time, you don't want to be distracted by irrelevant information. There's no easy answer to that, but mindfulness makes you aware that you need to be constantly assessing, what am I spending my time on right, and my attention on right now? What's creeping in that's not relevant to the situation at hand? Where, where should I be looking? Uh, I mentioned Heifetz in the thesis. He talks about a crowded dance floor and a balcony above the dance floor. To really know what's going on on the dance floor, you need to be on the dance floor. But at certain times, to really know what's going on on the dance floor, you need to be on the balcony above
0: you're doing your mindfulness training ahead of an incident happening when you are coming upon an incident are you reminding yourself of these different things or through your training is it becoming second nature
1: it's both there's some things that are clearly second nature but there's other things that are very conscious one of which is breath work i have gotten to a point in my career where i don't really feel that my breathing or my heart rate elevate that much earlier in my career it would. Be very evident that my responding to something that really sounded like it was going to be a a, a real crisis, I would feel my heart beating hard. I would feel my breathing, and I know that I would be rushed in my the tasks that I was performing or the decisions that I was making. Over time, that lessens and lessens and lessens, but I don't think it ever completely goes away. So I'm just very aware of that now, and I do breath work in the vehicle responding to an incident, even if I feel like I'm. I'm not the least bit excited, but I know that I'm gonna be making decisions. I'll do some breath work. I'll do a body scan, which is another mindfulness technique. And I'll do these things periodically throughout an incident. Even in the incidents that aren't the most severe crisis where it really feels like everything's flowing well, I will intentionally take opportunities to detach, to assign a monitoring the radio to another chief officer or to an aide. I may even turn my portable radio off and just walk a half a block away. And take that time to think about what is happening now or could be happening in the future at this incident that is not obvious. Is this incident truly like 100 or 1,000 of other incidents that I and the others that are here have responded to? Or are we missing something? What is the worst-case scenario that could happen? But oftentimes things go wrong when we think we've got the incident under control, seems to be winding down. I think it's important for anyone in a leadership position, but the higher up you go, the more important this is to detach, to get yourself away from your IAP and from your subordinates and your, and your superiors who are all the, the dialogue that's happening. The most important dialogue to get away from is the dialogue that's swirling around in your brain and to just shut down somehow, to detach and to become more self-aware.
0: You found success for yourself. Is this something that you have shared with your more junior officers as something that they may want to start for themselves?
1: I have. And I'm surprised at how receptive many of them have been. I'm not out there. This is not something that, I know, mean, I'm not in the training division of my department and I'm not uh, writing policies about mindfulness, just in conversation. I mentioned this to a few people and it's spread and I'm seeing some very good receptivity there.
0: You published your thesis in 2016. And like most researchers, you never let go of your topic. It's so such a personal thing. What new things have happened since you published
1: since you had invited me to the podcast i did a little more research and i I noticed and the fdny is really embracing this apparently they're making human performance initiative and optimizing human performance a part of the curriculum of virtually every training program that they have for their special operations they're wrapping some of this what i've termed mindfulness training but they're they're calling human performance improvement training or optimizing human performance so there's a lot of good work being done out there and i think this is really at a tipping point now where the typical first responder within another couple of years will be very familiar with these concepts.
0: Twice you said, I can't believe they're letting me study this (laughs) at at NPS. One of the great things about the program is it allows and encourages participants to bring together what might be unrelated things and say, how can this help the Homeland Security Enterprise? Is there a particular class or person on the faculty that really helped propel this
1: research? I learned so much from every professor, and this is such a special place for so many different reasons, and the faculty really being the primary reason. I mean, you know, whether they, they probably don't have any idea, but Dave Brannon and Andrew Stringberg with their social identity theory and really getting into how people have cognitive biases and how they perceive themselves, their place in the world, and how they perceive others and how people form groups, I think that really rolls a lot into the whole idea of mindfulness and self-awareness.
0: What would you say to a prospective applicant?
1: You're going to have to do a lot of work, so don't come here unless you're willing to do the work. But if you are, uh, you won't be sorry. This is just a first-class institution. This is the best education that I've ever been a participant in.
0: I was doing some background research for this interview, and by coincidence, I came across an article about a former colleague of mine, police chief Jennifer Tejada. She and John studied mindfulness research by Richard Gerling, The article described how Jennifer has been using Richard's techniques for herself and her department to help manage the unmitigated stress of law enforcement. Acceptance of yoga, breathing exercises, and mindfulness by the department members wasn't easy. There was slow but steady progress. She found success by teaching the science and research behind the mindfulness resiliency training. She then approached the California Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission with her experience And that led to a series of training videos that will introduce these techniques to law enforcement personnel throughout the state. John's research, Exploring Mindfulness to Enhance Crisis Decision Making, and Chief Tahada's implementation of the techniques for stress management, reinforced the mind-body connection. Their research and applied experience is relevant to first responders and homeland security professionals working in a high-stress environment, and it struck a chord with me. I'm an emergency manager, and during an event, I need to make critical decisions but I also need to manage the daily stress of the role. Maybe they were on to something. I decided to do a mindfulness experiment on myself using an app called Headspace. Every day for two weeks, I did a five to 10 minute mindfulness session to quiet the thoughts running through my head and I started to feel better. I slept more soundly, at least according to my watch, and I was more alert at work. In any case, I plan on continuing. What results would you have? I hope you've enjoyed hearing about John Flynn's thesis, Mindfulness Training, worthwhile as a means to enhance first responder crisis decision-making? To read a copy, browse to the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Mindfulness. I'm Bijan. Thanks for coming to the Reflecting Pool. The theme music was composed by Mr. Standfast, and additional editing was provided by James Marsh. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us. We'll see you next time.